Chapter Thirteen of From Bangkok to Bombay, Siam, French Indochina, Burma, Hindustan, by Frank G. Carpenter. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Calcutta. Some days ago, I left behind me the silken-skirted Burmese, the lofty spire of the Golden Pagoda, and the silvery temple bells of Rangoon, and sailed down the Irrawaddy on a British India steamer bound for calcutta the ship was one of three thousand tons with english officers and indian sailors and servants the cabin stewards were dark-faced heavy bearded men of forty wearing black velvet caps white gowns to their knees and tight white cotton trousers below which showed their bare feet and ankles the dining saloon waiters wore belted gowns and white bengali turbans with bands of blue ribbon we were several days on the bay of bengal out at sea the water was indigo but when we entered the mouth of the ganges it was as brown and soupy as that below rangoon i took a bath when we reached the pilot brig about a hundred miles from calcutta and after i had drained the tub there were my footprints in the mud almost as plain as those that frightened robinson crusoe on his desert island the ganges is as heavily laden with silt as the nile and is said to carry a volume of dirt five times as great as that brought down by the mississippi the deposit amounts to hundreds of millions of tons every year and the great bars it builds along the shore make the work of piloting the ships dangerous in the extreme like those of the irrawaddy the british pilots of calcutta are a close corporation there are considerably under a hundred of them and they monopolize the ganges or rather the hoogly for it is on the hoogly branch of the ganges delta that the ships go up to the city the pilots are paid so much for each vessel brought in and some of them make more than four thousand dollars a year to belong to this association a man must serve an apprenticeship and obtain a first mate's license he spends five years at low wages learning the river and then graduates to full rank of pilot the hoogly cannot be navigated at night and the ships go in with the tides as the latter rise there is often a bore which reaches a height of seven feet and which makes the risks much greater as we coasted the shores of the hoogly we passed jungles and low-lying malaria-infested lands a little farther up the houses began and in the vicinity of calcutta the banks were punctuated now and then with the tall smokestacks of jute mills near them were big brick structures where rough bagging is made to be shipped all over the globe jute is the cheapest of the commercial fibers and all of it appears to be spun and woven either in india or in dundee scotland calcutta sends vast quantities to the united states and much of our cotton crop is baled in the coarse fabric made here on the banks of the hoogly thus the thousands of indians working this fiber are in a measure dependent upon us and our cotton fields for their wages the manufactured jute annually exported is worth about one hundred and twenty five million dollars the hoogly is filled with shipping ocean steamers heavily loaded are continually going in and out with the tides for a foreign trade of more than six hundred million dollars a year is handled in the port of calcutta calcutta claims to be the premier city of india and boasts of herself as the second city of the british empire lying near the mouth of the two great river systems of the ganges 
and the Brahmaputra, Calcutta receives the produce of their fertile valleys for shipment abroad. The city is also situated about midway between Europe and the Far East, and thus becomes a meeting place for the commerce between the peoples of the Occident and the Orient. Its port, which stretches some ten miles along the river, is one of the busiest in the world, and building its new docks was the biggest job of the kind ever done. Most of the industries are carried on outside the city limits or in the suburbs. Howrah, on the opposite side of the Hooghly, is the terminus of three great railway systems and headquarters for the jute and other factories. These employ altogether some 80,000 men, chiefly recruited from up-country. Between it and Calcutta is an immense floating bridge more than 1,500 feet long. On the west bank of the Hooghly are the botanical gardens, in which is the great banyan tree, famous throughout India and the world. It has more than 250 trunks and covers an area nearly 1,000 feet in circumference. Including Howrah and the suburbs, Greater Calcutta has a population of nearly a million and a quarter, a number of a slight lead over her rival, Bombay. For all her growth and prosperity, I do not wonder, however, that Calcutta is one of the chief centers of the unrest of India. There are few places where differences of conditions are more pronounced. The natives of India are among the poorest peoples on earth, and Hindustan has millions who always go to bed hungry. In the slums of this city are people who count their morsels to see whether they will have enough to keep body and soul together for another day. At the same time, Calcutta has its fashionable residential quarters, where money flows like the Ganges, and a single family may spend a fortune in one season. The fashionable district centers around the Maidan, a park that furnishes the principal breathing space of the overcrowded city. It is nearly two miles long, three-quarters of a mile wide at the north, and a mile and a quarter at the south end. At the north is the palace of the governor of the province of Bengal, a mansion as snowy as newly slaked lime, and not far from the southern extremity is Belvedere House, the home formerly occupied by the governor, and now used by the viceroy on his annual visit to Calcutta. Both are surrounded by beautiful gardens. The Maidan is bordered with clubhouses and mansions. Its two-mile race course is one of the best in the Orient, and the Christmas meet at which the King Emperor's Cup and the Viceroy's Cup are prizes is the great social event of the season. In the evenings, the wealthy drive about in handsome turnouts, and the Viceroy and his lady may sometimes be seen in their motor. The fashionable parade includes also other officials and rich rajahs, as well as Parsees and many Eurasians or Anglo-Indians, as these children of English fathers and Indian mothers prefer to be called. Everyone has his chauffeur. In India, few car drivers drive their own automobiles, for the wages of chauffeurs are low, and besides, it is not considered exactly correct thus to serve oneself. Even when a man does drive his own car, there is usually a chauffeur beside him, most of the drivers are Mohammedans or Sikhs from the Punjab. Occasionally you see one of them in the native turban and gown, though more often they are in conventional uniforms of khaki or blue with visored caps. The viceroy and some of the higher officials 
always have their attendants dressed in uniforms of bright red serge trimmed with gold lace and embroidered with coronets initials and other insignia the servants of the indian rajahs are gorgeous with cloth of gold on costumes and in turbans many of the cars one sees on the maidan are of the big expensive makes and go like the wind it is no wonder that the poor hungry native whose lean shanks must twinkle to get him safely out of the way is furious when he contrasts his lot with that of the men in the automobiles he feels no better when he compares his hovel to the mansions on the maidan and the big government buildings where the british rule in state the governor's mansion is of about the same age as the white house at washington but it is far more magnificent and its surroundings are much more impressive west of it is the town hall a doric building finished in eighteen thirteen and near that are the magnificent buildings of the high courts another fine structure is the post office which faces the lake in dalhousie square i went through it to-day and as i came out i stopped at the corner and read on a tablet the following inscription the marble pavement below this spot was placed here by lord curzon viceroy and governor-general of india in nineteen o one to mark the site of the old prison in old fort william known as the black hole in which one hundred forty six british inhabitants of calcutta were confined on the night of the twentieth june seventeen fifty six and from which only twenty-three came out alive a paving of black marble exactly defines the dimensions of the prison and near it is an obelisk erected by one of the survivors the tragedy of the black hole was one of the most terrible incidents of the unrest of india in the days of the east india company the native nabob of bengal had seized the city and most of the british had fled down the river those that were left soon surrendered to the native prince who ordered their incarceration ate a huge meal and then went to bed the one hundred and forty-six prisoners were driven at the point of the sword into a dungeon twenty feet square it was in the heat of the tropical summer and the air holes were small in a short time they gasped for breath they cried for mercy and tried to break down the door they offered bribes to their guards but they were told that the nabob was asleep and he would be angry if he should be disturbed the dying then fought for places at the windows and raved and prayed and swore while their jailers held lights at the bars and laughed when the day broke the nabob having wakened from his slumbers commanded that the door be opened all but twenty-three of the sufferers were dead and the living were so far gone that they were barely able to stagger from the charnel house that tragedy is still remembered with horror and yet how closely the ridiculous tramples upon the heels of the tragic not so long ago a traveller was talking with the viceroy about the sights of calcutta and when his excellency asked him if he had seen the famous black hole he replied indeed i have i am living in it it is room one hundred five at the grand hotel i can sympathize with that visitor for i live in the same hotel it is said to be one of the best in town but it has numerous black holes just now it is so crowded that it is almost impossible to secure rooms and i got in only by cabling in advance from rangoon there are several big hotels in calcutta rambling three-story buildings that cover acres and have all sorts of inconveniences 
the door of my room for instance is fastened with a padlock which snaps with a spring there is only one key and when i left it this afternoon it remained inside the room i could not get in until i reported to the manager and to open the door the servants had to climb up the walls and in through the window there is an electric bell in my room but now i know better than to ring it for the hotels in india even the best of them furnish no bellboy service once when i was new to travel in hindustan i rang and rang a similar push-button but got no response finally i propped my umbrella against it and left it there for a full hour with the same result in india no one who knows what is good for him travels without his own body or personal servant in fact it is almost impossible for an englishman or an american to get along without one the boy acts as interpreter sees to hiring and paying for cabs and taxis and waits upon you on the trains and at your hotels in many places if you have no servant you will get nothing to eat your bed goes unmade your boots go unblacked and your life is generally uncomfortable the moment our ship came to anchor at calcutta a score of would-be servants rushed aboard and attached themselves to the passengers two picked me as their prey each determined to outdo the other supposing them to belong to the grand hotel i handed over my bags as soon as i got to my room each claimed that he had brought my baggage and that this service established him as my boy both offered sheaves of letters as references and both seemed equally good one was a straight dark hindu of thirty and the other a mohammedan of forty or so the hindu's name was nun lal while the follower of the prophet called himself wali mohammed i took a day to decide between them during which time each dogged my footsteps i could not ask for anything but both jumped to get it and when i attempted to slip out to inquire about them i found both on guard ready to follow me if i asked the hours of meals the two answered in concert and if i wanted hot water both started on the dead run to get it indeed i was in much the same position as the man adopted by a dog except that i had been adopted by two dogs and both stuck i settled the matter by paying nunlal a dollar and letting him go and appointing wali mohammed my valet he cost me only about thirty cents a day and feeds himself while i was waiting to decide between the two i locked up their letters of recommendation in my trunk it is possible to hire such letters in the bazaars and if they are not genuine the servant who has offered them to you will protest as he is obliged to return them to the rightful owner if they are genuine your boy is not apt to rob you and leave so long as you have his letters in safe keeping for it would be difficult for him to secure another job without them i am told that i shall find wali more satisfactory than nun law as the moslems make better servants both of my boys were barefooted and wore head coverings if either one had appeared before me in shoes or with his head unswathed i should have known that he meant to be insolent and should have ordered him off at once End of chapter 13